0: Today we are going to be continuing with our study of First John. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the second chapter in First John. But really, um, what we're going to be we're going to do a quick review first, because as you guys know, we spent the last uh, well the last three weeks that I was here um, going through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, which I think was a totally relevant book to, uh, to our culture and really really helped me work through some of my frustrations and maybe you know, my, my misgivings or my, my uh, just kind of disgust at uh, what we see going on around us. But that book honestly did help me. I hope it helped you as well. That's one of the things God's Word can do. It gives you comfort. Uh, and it shows you that there's nothing new under the sun, and it reassures us that God is always in control, even when it looks like he's not. So the book of 1 John, if you're there, hopefully. The book of 1 John, it's really a picture of what the Christian life is all about. It's what the Christian life should look like, but it's also, uh, it also gives us a look of what the Christian life should not look like. Uh, So having taken a pretty uh, extensive break from our study of this book, it's been one month, um, we should review some, uh, some of the content that we've already covered before we continue. So through the first chapter and a half that we've covered so far in 1 John, We've seen John go back and forth between warning those who do not seem to be living up to the standards of the Christian life, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. They don't exactly match it. But he's also uh, going back and forth between that and offering assurance of salvation to those who are truly, truly converted and who are living like they're converted. And so we saw that it all starts with a very simple principle back in chapter one, verse five, where John wrote, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so that's the foundation of really the rest of the book. So, so make sure that you, you hold on to, to that thought. And John then proceeded to warn us about anyone, ourselves included, who claims to have fellowship with God and yet walks in darkness living their life as if there is no God to whom they will one day be held accountable. And so he contrasts that with the believer who, by faith in Christ, is cleansed from all sin and demonstrates the authenticity of their conversion by walking in the light as God Is in the light. That is, they'll live their lives in obedience to God. They'll live their lives with a concern for obedience to God's word. They'll live their life in a way that honors and glorifies Christ as Lord. And when they stumble, and we all do stumble, they'll be eager to confess their sins and to be forgiven. And then John immediately warned us about those who might claim to have no sin, and he warned us that such a person is a liar. So, okay, that's, that's a review of chapter 1. Going into chapter 2, John warns us about those who profess to be Christian and yet show no interest in demonstrating obedience to what Jesus said. They have no interest or little interest, at best, in showing obedience to the commands of Christ. And John then contrasts that by giving assurance of salvation to those who take the commandments of Christ seriously enough to put them into practice so that it's not just lip service, it's not just in one ear and out the other. They're more than hearers, they're also doers, as James would have said it. Uh, they're striving to walk as Jesus walked. And one of the commands that John intentionally kind of honed in on, zeroed in on, was the command that. We as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he told us that the person who does not love Christians, love the Christian community, love uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, doesn't belong to Christ and isn't part of the church. So, in our last study, before taking a few weeks to study Habakkuk and having missions week last week, uh, in our last study, we started looking at this group of people, these Gnostics is what they were called, who had attempted to deceive the people of God, had attempted to deceive the, the church that John is writing to. And they eventually ended up just walking away from the faith, walking away from the church, abandoning them, leaving them confused, perhaps even feeling disillusioned about you know what Christianity was even all about to begin with. And John made it clear that the reason that these Gnostics, the reason that these heretics... Walked away from the faith, abandoned the church, was because they were never a part of the church to begin with. Why did they walk away? Because they were never one of us. That's basically what he says. Instead, he refers to them as antichrists. Not a term that you want to use lightly, not a term that has any really positive implications. And this helped us to identify what we might refer to as counterfeit Christianity. We saw that anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet doesn't love their brothers and sisters in Christ and walks away from the regular fellowship of believers in the context of a local church should be very, very concerned about the legitimacy, the authenticity of their conversion. Because God has designed us. We're all new creations, and he designed us in our new creation state as his people to not only need one another, and we do. We need one another. We're we're one body. Just like a thumb needs a hand and and a toe needs a foot, we need one another, and we also belong to one another. So the point that John was trying to make is not that our salvation is achieved or uh, received by going to church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is that if we defect from Christian fellowship, doing so is evidence of a defective faith. It means there's something wrong with us. There's something that's not right with us. Not wrong with the faith, but with our faith. So let me ask you this. What prevents a believer from doing that? What prevents a believer from walking away? What prevents legitimate Christians from defecting from the faith and walking away from Christian fellowship? After all, I mean, let's be honest, who among us could ever deny that there are some heavy hitters out there? There are some intellectual hitmen out there who are waging an all-out war against the Christian faith. And I'm not just talking about guys like you know Richard Dawkins or you know th- those types of people, the people who are atheists and they just fiercely hate Christianity. Uh, not that they wage a war against Islam or any other uh, deistic religion, but they, they, they hate God, they hate the idea of God, and they're waging a war against it. But what about just the people of our culture who yeah, are, are trying to persuade us to, to go the way that they're going? It, it's a constant struggle for us. And what... What keeps us from going along with it? What keeps us from following the crowd, walking away from the Christian faith? Because let's be honest, the bombardment of other philosophies and ideologies that go against Christianity can be really discouraging to see ourselves surrounded by it. can just be completely demoralizing. And some of these opponents of the faith might even make some fairly persuasive, somewhat persuasive arguments from time to time. So what makes us stay? What prevents us from abandoning and walking away from the faith and or the church? So we start our study today by examining and contemplating this very question, this this very issue, as John quickly contrasts those who have left the fellowship of the church. Remember, that's where we left off. They they left the church, they left you guys because they were never part of you to begin with. And he's going to contrast those people with the church, demonstrating that these other people were never Christians to begin with, and those who have remained in fellowship are. So he continues in verse 20. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says, but you, there's the contrast, but you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, one of the things that I'll do when I'm um, preparing a sermon is—I'll look at different translations and see how they, you know, how they've worded things. And actually, the, the King James translation translate the second half, uh, translates the second half of this verse in kind of a, a humorous way. The KJV says, "And ye know all things." You know all things, and of course, we recognize that there's a vast difference between you all have knowledge and you have all knowledge. They're not even in the same ballpark, right? Uh, And this is somewhat comical, but I can assure you that that is not what John is saying. He's not saying Christians know everything that there is to know. We all recognize that there are very, very, very few personality types that are more obnoxious than the know-it-all uh, we, we really don't need to prove that we don't know everything do we has anybody been through school did you ever learn anything i mean there you go uh, we don't know all things that's not what john was saying the correct translation is uh, all of you have knowledge so the question that you might be tempted to ask at this point is knowledge of what well, that's the second half of the verse. We have to look at the first half of the verse first. So before we answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, how do we have knowledge? How is it that Christians all have knowledge? What's the source? And that's answered by the first half of this verse. It's because you, plural, you or we have been anointed by the Holy One. And this is one of those verses that really confuses a lot of people, number one, because it gets misused a lot in various Christian circles, but also because it's just a word that we don't use a lot. When was the last time you had a conversation about work and you used the word anointing? You've probably never done it, so it confuses people because it's a word that we don't use a lot, and the word anointing isn't a very common word in the New Testament. In fact, it's only found in one other place, and that is verse 27 here in chapter 2 of First John. So it's a pretty rare word in the New Testament. So to answer the question, what is the source of our knowledge? We don't need to look any further than what Jesus said in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 26, John quotes Jesus as saying, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When God, in His sovereign mercy, His sovereign grace, regenerated us, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the beautiful truth of the gospel message, replacing our old nature, which was constantly against Him, constantly antagonistic against His ways, and He replaced that with a new nature which seeks to please Him, He also gave us something else. In addition to the new Spirit, or the new, uh, the new nature, he gave us the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What would John's audience have thought that it means? Well, they probably had kind of a working knowledge of the Old Testament. So going back to the Old Testament, we see that anything that was set apart to be used by or for God, consecrated unto God, was supposed to be anointed. Anointed. So in Exodus chapter 40 verses 9 to 15 we read, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. So what does this tell us? Aside from the fact that if you want to make something consecrated unto God, it takes a lot of work and a lot of meticulous work. It tells us that God is holy. It tells us that He doesn't take things that are just ordinary and common as they are, they have to be cleansed to even come into His presence. Anything that belongs to him, anything that's consecrated unto him is to be anointed. It's to be cleaned. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament basically means to smear or cover with oil for the sake of purification. Because oil has antimicrobials in it, actually. So it it cleanses it. Now, you may not even realize this, but if you are a Christian... At the moment that God gave you life by grace and through faith, you were consecrated unto him. You were set apart by and for him, consecrated by God for use by him and service unto him. And this is what we call being born again. It's the the miracle, the absolute miracle of regeneration, the work of God in which God reaches down into the muck and the mire and the sewage of human existence. And he gives life to people who were once dead and he cleanses them. He cleanses them from the filth of their sin with the blood of Christ, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So to anoint something, In the physical sense, to anoint something meant to clean it, clean the the surface of it. But the anointing of the Holy Spirit does more than that. It, It cleans us inside as well. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And he teaches us. And he guides us. And he prompts us and convicts us. And for that reason, every legitimate Christian has some degree of knowledge. Now, the question is, what do we have knowledge of? What is it that all Christians know? Now we're ready to ask and answer that question. Well, I'd start with knowledge of God, for one thing. We, we all have knowledge of God. Uh, that much is certain. The Holy Spirit wants us to learn more about God. He causes us to have a hunger, a thirst, for a deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge and understanding an application of, of Him and, and His Word. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus told His disciples, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. Helper. He, he helps us to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, present tense and will be in you, future tense, speaking of Pentecost. So if you're a Christian, uh, that's one thing that you know. You, you You have some basic understanding, some basic knowledge of God. If you're a Christian, you also know the voice of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In fact, one verse earlier, Jesus makes it clear to the unbelievers, the skeptics, who are questioning him, that the reason that they didn't believe was because they were not his sheep. But the person who's born again, the person who is regenerated by God, knows the voice of Christ. And when they hear it, they follow. They follow him. And the context here also demands that we include the knowledge that Christ is Lord. Uh, Looking ahead one verse, uh, next week we'll see that John says of the Gnostics, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Then he contrasts that with them who know, the church knows that Jesus is the Christ. So he's saying that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord of all, is a liar. Conversely then, if you're a Christian, you know you know that Jesus is Lord. And that means that you recognize that he is master of your life, that he owns your life, and that he has authority over your life. Given the context here, I think uh, it could also be argued that one of the things that John is implying is that we'll know that we have a spiritual need for fellowship within the context of a community of like-minded Christians. We know that we need one another and we know that we belong to one another. Now, we may not li- always live by that. We may not always put that into principle. But somewhere, it's in there. Somewhere, we, we, we understand this truth. That Jesus died for me and he died for you and that we are one in Christ. So, I think it could be argued that That's part of what John's saying. John told us in the verses leading up to this that uh, that the Gnostics abandoned the fellowship of the saints because they were never one of the saints. And then he contrasts that by saying, but you. They left. They felt like they didn't have the need for one another. They felt like they didn't have the need for you guys. But you have an anointing. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And you have knowledge. If... You are indeed truly part of the church. So given the overall context of this letter, it was very important for John to remind them, or maybe if they weren't sure, to assure them that they did have knowledge. Because the Gnostics, the word Gnostic comes from gnoso, which means to know, knowledge knowledge. So he's reminding them, he's assuring them that they do have knowledge because these Gnostics profess to have a different kind of knowledge, a very special knowledge, a knowledge that wasn't just available to anyone and everyone. And they told those who rejected them that, you know, you're rejecting us because you're lacking knowledge. They claimed to have a knowledge which didn't have a foundation and which didn't originate in Scripture and didn't line up with Scripture you see, Scripture doesn't tell us that knowledge is necessarily bad. And there are some people who are like, well, if you, if you educate yourself in the faith, you're not living by faith. As if knowledge is opposed to reason and, and, and intellect. It's not. You know, scripture doesn't tell us that knowledge is necessarily bad. But someone who claims to have a knowledge which doesn't line up with Scripture, which isn't supported by Scripture, doesn't really have any true knowledge at all. Instead, they're, they're deceived and they're foolish. And history tells us that the primary false doctrine of these Gnostics was that was basically that material is bad. You know, physical elements of the universe are bad, and that which is spirit, that which is non-physical, is good. And from this false doctrine flowed several errors which led people astray from correct biblical doctrine, thus making Gnosticism one of the earliest and and most deadly uh, heresies that the church was forced to confront. See, they taught that because material was evil, all of mankind was therefore necessarily evil. Everything physical is evil, and of course, that is false. There's an element of truth there, but if you look at the whole thing, no, that's not true at all. It's not a necessary causality. Physical, being physical doesn't necessarily lead to being evil. Adam was physical. Adam was material, but he was not created evil. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he was physical, and yet he was not evil. He faced every temptation that you and I have, and yet he was without sin. But the Gnostics taught that because we're physical beings, we're evil. Not because we have a fallen nature, but because we're physical. So, no, we're we're just evil because we're physical. And if that premise is accepted, then the second premise makes perfect sense. And that is that because all material is evil, a person must escape from the physical realm. Overcome the flesh. Now, that sounds... That sounds almost scriptural, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like something, you know, you'd hear a Christian saying, overcome the flesh? Only this escape from the body, this escape from the flesh, wasn't through faith in Christ as the Savior of the world, who bore the wrath of God and died so that the one who believes in Him may have eternal life. Rather, the Gnostics taught that you must overcome the flesh by having this special type of knowledge, which only these false teachers were enlightened enough to have and to understand and to experience. And so John tells us, point blank, that every Christian, every Christian has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian. And there are some heretical leaders, if I may use that term, Who march around claiming to be Christians, and when they're challenged on false doctrine, they'll say something like, Well, God says, touch not my anointed. Which he did. He said that in the Old Testament. This is something that God said, but he said it only in reference to the kings in Israel and only in reference uh, to, to warning people not to physically harm the kings. He wasn't talking about holding them accountable. He wasn't talking about not offering insight or correction. So really, to use this as a means of silencing critics is a horrible, horrible misrepresentation of that passage. It's a horrible misrepresentation of Scripture. It's not like only the teachers in God's kingdom receive the anointing, which is basically what they're implying when they say, God says, touch not my anointed. No, that's where where this type of thinking becomes very dangerous. As if only teachers get this anointing. It sets those people up on pedestals and it implies that they answer to nobody. And they're accountable to nobody because only they are anointed. No, the teachers, John's telling us very clearly here, the teachers are anointed in God's kingdom, but so is everyone. If you are a Christian... You are anointed with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are anointed. So to refute the the teachings of these Gnostic heretics, John tells these fellow Christians that they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They've been consecrated. They've been set apart for God's purposes. They've been set apart by God and they have been filled with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, they all do have Knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to agree on everything. Hang around Christians long enough and you'll figure out that there are some uh, issues that are on the, the fringe of Christianity that people disagree on, and, and that's okay. So, yeah, we, we definitely don't agree on absolutely everything, but it does mean that we will agree on the fundamental doctrines the fundamental foundational doctrines of the faith we will know them to be true and for that reason john can confidently write what he says next verse 21 he says i write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth truth man that's something that we don't talk about in our culture you don't talk about truth especially in the public arena. The very concept of there being some type of truth that applies to everybody has been completely rejected by our postmodern culture. And everything, as a result, everything has been reduced to an opinion. And the most politically incorrect offensive thing that you can do in our day and age in our culture is to claim to know some type of truth to claim to have some type of truth if you've ever heard someone say there's no such thing as truth you you know what i'm talking about has anybody ever heard somebody say that there's no such thing as truth i know i've heard a lot of people say that i've seen it on tv there's no such thing as truth Of course, the counter to such a a ridiculous statement is simply to ask is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Hmm. And the crazy thing is, this is just, it's so simple. It's so simple to counter that. And yet, the postmodern mind isn't trained to tread in philosophical water that's basically the kiddie pool they're not even trained to consider such a question. Our colleges and our universities and our public school system, they have brainwashed students to automatically regurgitate slogans like, you know, that's true for you, but not for me, or that might be your truth, but it's not my truth, as if truth is relative, as if truth is subjective. How many of you can imagine being pulled over by a police officer who tells you that you're going too fast only to respond with, well, officer, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. (laughs) Who in their right mind would apply for Harvard Medical School? And when they say, we're sorry, your undergraduate GPA was insufficient for admission into our program, how many of you can imagine responding with, well, that might be your truth, but it's not mine? The truth is that all truth is objective. There is no such thing as relative truth. And if you want to try me on that after, I, I'll, I, I love actually having people try me on that. You know, okay, well, let's say I like ice cream. I like mint chocolate chip ice cream. There you go. That's a subjective relative truth. i say, no, it's not. It's absolutely true that you like mint chocolate chip ice cream. All truth, all truth is objective. Relative truth doesn't exist. I was working at a bank um, when I was in seminary, and customer service, of course, was very important in the banking industry. We were uh, you know, always supposed to have a smile, always supposed to give outstanding customer service, and I remember my boss once saying that the customer is always right. We've all heard that, right? But the reason that he gave was kind of funny. He said the customer is always right because truth is all a matter of perspective, Anybody ever heard that one? Truth is just a matter of perspective. Yeah, what I wanted to say was, well, is it just your perspective that truth is all pers- that all perspective or that all truth is perspective? Or is it really all a matter of perspective? Because if it's just your perspective that truth is just a matter of perspective, well I've got a different perspective. So we're good, right? Yeah, you see the idea that truth is relative or that truth is based on perspective, it's all self-defeating. When you apply that is when you apply that statement to itself, it contradicts itself. Truth is objective. That is it's true for all people in all times in all places. And truth is exclusive. That is to say that whatever is not true is necessarily false. Another concept that our postmodern society has rejected. And they'll say that about our faith. Oh, you guys are so exclusive. But when you say, no, 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, they don't say, oh, why are you being so exclusive? You have some kind of, you know, favoritism for the number 4 or something? It's ridiculous. But see, this is where it gets complicated. Imagine that you want to know the truth about something that you can't see on your own that you can't see on your own. Let's say that you want to know the truth about the planet Pluto, which we have recently discovered quite a bit about because we have a... a, a a rocket ship that went up and they they took all kinds of pictures of Pluto and uh, we learned all kinds of things about Pluto we never would have known before. But let's say that you want to know the truth about the planet Pluto. You want to know its exact dimensions. You want to know what it consists of. You want to know what the terrain on Pluto is like. You want to know, is there life on Pluto? What's the gravitational force on Pluto? How long does it take for Pluto to make an entire rotation around the sun? Now, apart from... Scientific discoveries coming out of NASA and, and other space uh, agencies. How many of you would have the answers to these questions on your own? Yeah, nobody would. We wouldn't be able to know the truths about these things on our own. You might have your theories about it, but you can't know if your theories are true unless you have the right tools, the right resources, the right equipment. And this is how it works with God. God as well think back to the upper room discourse the night before jesus went to the cross jesus is having his final meal with his disciples before going to the cross and he's he's unfolding before them this this great plan that he has for them and how how are they taking it how are they receiving it they're not it's, it's just totally blowing their minds. It's, it's more than they can possibly understand. They have no idea what Jesus is actually talking about or what's about to happen. In John 16, 12, he finally says to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It was like a giant puzzle, and they didn't have anything to compare the pieces to, so they had no idea how all these pieces could possibly all fit Together, Why couldn't they understand? Why couldn't they bear what he was saying? For the same reason that, on our own, we can't know anything about the planet Pluto. Because they didn't have the necessary resources or equipment to understand it, to make sense of it all. And this is really fallen man's problem. This is This is part of having a fallen nature. Fallen man doesn't have the equipment or the resources or the tools that are necessary for understanding, for discerning, and for applying the truths of God. Fallen man can't even understand himself. His idea of himself does not line up with what the Bible reveals about him. How can fallen man make sense of anything in the world, in the universe, if he can't even make sense of himself? He doesn't even understand himself. That's why the gospel is offensive. This is why the gospel is offensive. It tells us the truth about ourselves. It reveals our inadequacies. It reveals our sins. It reveals the wickedness that dwells in our hearts. It reveals our complete Complete inability to do anything to save ourselves. It reveals our inability to do anything good on our own apart from God's work in us. Fallen man has built his life. He's built his future, his identity, his personal kingdom on sinking sand. And the gospel carries with it the necessary implication. That if it's not built on the solid rock of Christ, it is all for naught. It is all for nothing. It's all been a waste of time and you're going to lose all of it eventually. The gospel carries with it the implication that such a person has planned very poorly. The gospel carries with it the implication that every aspect of the unbeliever's life is going to be lost and swept away one day. And these things are all true. Objectively true. And this is the offense of the gospel. And yet, as John Calvin said, If we do not perceive our wretchedness and poverty, we will never know how desirable is that remedy that Christ has brought to us. Fallen man does not know the truth about God. And that's why Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says the natural person, he's speaking of the unbeliever. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Not, not that he just refuses to. He's not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is the same reason that the disciples were so perplexed as they sat there eating the Passover meal with Jesus on the night of his betrayal. And this is why they couldn't bear. This is why they couldn't understand or grasp what he was saying. But what does Jesus say immediately after he says, "You, I've got so much more to say to you, but you can't bear it now. He, He follows it up by saying this, John 16, verses 13 and 14. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When the spirit of truth comes. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about how the Holy Spirit is not just going to dwell with them. He is going to dwell in them. On the day of Pentecost, that's what happened. And notice, by the way, that he says, he. He refers to the Holy Spirit as he, not it. And a lot of people do refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, just as the Father and Son are persons. Jesus is saying that without the Holy Spirit, none of this is going to make any sense. But with the Holy Spirit, this will all make sense to you. He will reveal to you how this all fits together so that you will be able to understand it. You'll be able to see it. You'll be able to apply it. This is the only way. This is the only way that the gospel has ever made sense to anyone. They have the Holy Spirit reveal the truth about the gospel to them. How does anyone ever accept the fact that they are completely wretched, incapable of doing anything good? Because the Holy Spirit reveals the truth about their condition to them. How does anyone ever come to terms with the fact that salvation is only possible by fully trusting in a man named Jesus who died on a cross 2,000 years ago? To the Gentile, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. To the unbeliever, that seems absolutely foolish. And yet we embrace it as true. Why? Because the Holy Spirit reveals the truth about who Jesus is and why he did it. This is the only way. That any of us have ever come to understand these things. This is the only way that any of us have ever come to Christ. It's not because, you know, you had a really inquisitive mind and you just found the truth, you know, stumbled upon it on your own. It's not because you came forward for an altar call or said a so called sinner's prayer. You know, those things aren't even in the Bible. They certainly cannot save you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even the faith that you have is there because God gave it to you. It's a gift. Fallen man has no ability to have saving faith. And from nothing comes nothing. So no, you came to Christ because God gave you ears to hear. And God gave you eyes to see all that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you. About Christ, about yourself, about salvation. And if you look around the world today... Like me, you might think that it just feels like everything is going absolutely insane. It is, man. Everything is going insane, but that's one of the things about living in a fallen world among fallen man. This is why those who are advancing these God-hating ideologies that we see everyone embracing themselves are not our enemy. They are captives of the enemy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, he's speaking about Satan there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, quote, all the preaching in the world cannot make a man see the truth so long as his eyes are blinded. So how, what do we do? How, how do we solve the social and the cultural problems that are growing and advancing around us? We don't solve them, but we know the one who can. And so we pray and we trust in God. We trust him to protect us and to provide for us and we pray for him to open the eyes of the unbelievers around us who so desperately need the gospel. We pray for him to reveal the truth about himself to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members who show little or no interest in living in obedience to God's will. You see, fallen man can build a really neat spaceship that reaches and photographs planets that are millions and millions of miles away. They can construct it. They can figure out how to fuel it. They can figure out how to navigate it. They can figure out how to control it remotely. But fallen man cannot figure out how to come to God through faith in Christ on their own. And this is where every false religion, every heresy, every cult starts right here with an attempt to get to God according to man's ideology, according to man's philosophy, according to our terms and conditions. But this is not how it works. According to God's own word, sinful man cannot make a way. Sinful man cannot devise a plan or a system that gets them to God. God. That's a work that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And that's why regeneration is such an incredible miracle. If you hang around some circles of Christians, you know, they're, they're constantly looking for miracles. And I just want to say, well, you are one. You are, you're a miracle. God considers regeneration to be a greater miracle, a more beautiful miracle than the creation of the earth, than the creation of the universe. We all know, you know, going through Genesis chapter 1, on the first day God said it was good, second day God said it was good, then he gets to man, it was very good. We're this beautiful miracle in God's eyes. Regeneration is such an incredible miracle. It's an amazing work that he considers to be more beautiful than the most beautiful things we've ever seen. Sinful man cannot devise a plan. To come to God. And that's why Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus himself. Man cannot devise a way to come to God. But God devised a way to come to man. And to reconcile sinners to himself by repenting and by believing in Jesus Christ. And that is an objective truth that the Holy Spirit must reveal to a person. We can say it and say it and say it to an unbeliever until we're just blue in the face and sick of saying it and they're never ever ever going to understand it coming from our lips they're never going to grasp it Paul describes those who are lost in disbelief 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 7 he describes them as always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth there's that word again able not that they just refuse to come to the truth they're not able able We can only do so much. The Great Commission doesn't instruct us to save everybody because we don't save anyone. We can only do so much. We cannot make someone believe the truth about Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not ours. But we do have a very important job. The Great Commission does matter. Our job is to share the truth. Our job is to instruct and to leave the results in God's hands. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. He leads us into truth, and when we stumble across something false, he leaves a proverbial pebble in our shoes. What do you do when you got a pebble in your shoe? Now, if you're a runner, you might hope that it shifts between your toes or something. And so you might try to kind of tough it out or something. If you're walking, you might try to tough it out for a while if you're you're really stubborn. But eventually you will stop and you will take the pebble out. That's how it works with the Holy Spirit teaching us truth as well. We might have a belief in something that isn't true, but the Holy Spirit will lean on us. And convict us and speak to us until we stop and take that proverbial pebble out of our shoe, so to speak. And this is how we make sense of life. This is how we make sense of reality. We have the right equipment. We have the Holy Spirit. As Ray Stedman says, the glorious thing about knowing Christ is that the longer you live and the more you observe life with Him, Christ, at the center, you find that everything fits. But his faith in Christ is what makes everything all make sense. It makes sense why our culture not only practices evil, but celebrates it and embraces every form of wickedness. It makes sense why God would desire us to stop sinning. It makes sense why Jesus had to bear the wrath of God against sin on our behalf, on behalf of anyone who would trust in Him alone for salvation. And it makes sense why fallen man can never, ever, ever be the solution for the problems that He has created and continues to create for Himself. And so John says here in verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. See, John wasn't wasn't trying to give them any new information. He knew that they already had it. These Gnostics had been teaching them lies. It was lies. The thing that made it a lie was the fact that it contradicted what they knew to be true. It contradicted what God's very word says. It emphasized a trust trust in something other than Jesus. And scripture is very clear that trust in something other than Jesus is an empty, worthless trust. And so these Christians had to grasp and discern and apply the truths that they knew because they had the right equipment. They had the ability to apply it. They had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, anything that John's telling them would have made no sense at all. It would have been just like talking to a wall. So in closing, do you understand That there is no way of harmonizing, of, of bringing together what is true and what is a lie. You cannot dilute the truth with a lie because the moment you do, it's not truth. Do you know that truth cannot be compromised without giving the whole thing away? Do you grasp the fact that what's true is true and what's false is false regardless of your perspective? Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, every legitimate Christian has the ability to understand these things. Every Christian has the ability to understand that God has set moral boundaries and to discern where those boundaries lay. You cannot put truth and a lie together in a blender and get something that works, just like you cannot blend light and darkness. If you belong to God, you know that it's true. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And you desire to follow that truth. Walking in the light as well. And so as the voices in our culture raise and increase in number and volume, I would challenge you to apply these concepts. Listen to what they're saying. Examine what the voices are saying. Look at the philosophies and the ideologies of our time and see how empty they are. See, see that they defeat themselves. They're self-defeating. Look at how false they are in light of the truths that are clearly laid forth in God's word. God's word is the one standard of truth that we must learn to rely on. And if you read Scripture... And it resounds with you. It strikes you as being true. In everything that it says, you're entitled to feel the assurance of knowing that you recognize the Good Shepherd's voice and you follow Him. And the only reason you do is because you belong to Him. Friends, we cannot compartmentalize our lives. Where we live some parts by the truth and other parts of our lives by a lie, just like we cannot compartmentalize anything Our life, living part for Jesus and part for work, part for family, part for anything else. It all has to be done for Jesus. The idea is to live every single aspect of our lives in the light, in the truth, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. That's what the anointing of the Holy Spirit is all supposed to lead us toward. That's what the Christian life is all about. The necessary equipment to understand and to apply these things is in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. You have the equipment to understand and apply these truths. Our job and our joy is to use it. Let's pray. Father God we thank you. For who you are. We thank you. For giving us eyes to see. And ears to hear. The beautiful truth of Christ. And to come to terms with the awful truth about ourselves. Apart from your grace. We thank you Lord for. For redeeming us for saving us for cleansing us for forgiving us through the shed blood of your son Jesus and i pray lord that we would that we would learn to listen to that still small voice that directs us away from the culture and to your word teach us lord to live by your word teach us to live with a hunger and a desire to be obedient to you, in order that through you we may live and glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. So much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org.